Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. All right, you two, what is your astrological sign? What it, what, I, I'm a Taurus. You're talking to a Taurus over here. I think I am, what too. Uh, I think I'm a Taurus. You? You're, when's your birthday, Dave? I am. It means for me, it means uh, I don't know what it means. I have no idea what it means. I just know that I'm a Taurus, and occasionally someone who knows what it means will tell me, oh, that makes sense because you're a Taurus. So are they like, oh, so you're a passive man that cries a lot? Is that the, I feel like that's the thing between both of you. <laughs> Tauruses are supposed to be bullheaded. They're supposed to be like, I think, obstinate Ooh, and, uh, okay. you know, oh, yeah, okay. determined. Something like that, oh, right? Yeah. Right? Wow. Dave? That sounds spot on with both of you. Exactly. Yes, Sarah. Uh, you seem very determined, aggressive. Bull- when I think of bullheaded. Dave and RJ, I think bull-like. Every well, time. ask our wives. Yeah. Ask our wives. See what they have to say. <laughs> Uh, this is going to be funny because today we're going to talk about talk about men. So, Sarah, what sign are you? Oh my god, I love this game. I'm a Scorpio, and and that if fits. your kids are in the car, turn the volume down. Well, every time you read a Scorpio's like whatever, the first line is always basically some variation of "Stop being such a bitch." <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm always like, maybe this is right. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Did you guys grow up in households where horoscopes were a thing? Not at all. So I grew up in a household, you know, my dad was a newspaper guy. And so he was taking all kinds of jobs as a young journalist. And for a while, he edited a women's magazine hmm. and basically wrote the whole thing Would literally like put his friends names on the like, you know, where you list all the staff in the magazine because he was like, I don't want it to look like I write everything. But he could not, or probably did not, knowing my dad, didn't have anybody to write the astrological charts, so he wrote them. He did. So whenever I was like a teenager and was like, oh my gosh, that like blah, 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 astrology, my dad's like, there's a desperate 32-year-old man <laughs> just trying to get by writing those. They are trying to pay utter the bills. nonsense. Total nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So I, ne- I never actually thought that they were I mean that really like early on when you hear that you're like okay well who knows you know well why do you think you know you mentioned it's in a women's magazine what tell me Sarah what I because I, I don't know any men who know tell anything us about, about women this. Sarah <laughs> tell us a little bit about, why why is it such a thing uh, you're a woman tell us Every woman. <laughs> um I mean I think people I think especially women, because we, we do tend to gravitate towards that. I mean, I I will say, and I know this is dangerous territory, but I'm in good company with it. It's a little bit like the Enneagram to me, just a little bit. And that it's this sense of like, I just want to know more about myself. I agree. And I want, yeah. And I'm sure you would. And I want like my decisions affirmed and I want, you know, so I do think like you can kind of hold a little bit of that truth in both of those arenas. 
I don't know. I mean, I think people want answers and they're desperate to know what their future is like in a, in a world that everything feels uncertain and it feels like a way to get them, you know? I mean, I think I've said this before, yeah. but like after the death of mom and dad, I was like, seances, get it. Tarot cards, get it. Like, you know, it's mm. not a thing I want to do, but I think I have a lot more empathy for people who, for whatever reason, can't find comfort in quote unquote traditional religion and are going to these like other ways. Do I think that they give them actual answers? Ugh, I don't, but mm. I understand the, the seeking of comfort there for sure. There's a there was a New Yorker cartoon a couple of days ago I think of like God in the heavens like taking two stars and just like switching them and saying this will really mess with the Virgos. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it made, made me made me laugh. I think I think you're right too. I mean I think it's why you know any grasping at anything. I mean how can you not uh, sympathize a little bit with that? The reason I ask you guys is there is a humor article from Reductress which was just very funny and uh, I sent it to Sarah and she was like we have to talk about this which is, uh, the headline is why I don't believe in astrology unless it reaffirms something I already thought. Mm-hmm. And this is what she writes. She says, I was raised in a pretty secular household. So when I moved to the big city after college and walked around the trendy boutiques of gentrified neighborhoods, I scoffed at their offerings of $20 crystals and horoscope jewelry. I can proudly say I'm a staunch contrarian to divinatory pseudoscience. Unless I happen to browse an astrology reading that aligns with something I already believe or validates a part of my existence. Yeah. Don't even get me started on daily horoscopes. Most of them are just vague fortune cookie prophecies that could apply to anything. Except for that one time I was having the absolute worst day. I misscheduled a few quote-unquote important meetings and everyone was so mad at me. But I swear it wasn't all my fault. When I was complaining about it to my friend later, she said my life was so chaotic at the moment because one of my natal planets was in retrograde today or something. And that made so I'm like, much Oh my God, don't talk about my years like that. So... <laughs> Duh. I wasn't, quote, absolutely incompetent at my job, end of quote, like my boss said. My Venus was just in bad transit. No. What are we doing? No. (laughs) We can't. We can't be doing it. I mean, go, RJ. I think that's that's exactly right. Like, what I wanted to say was that we want to believe or we think we want to believe that we're in control of everything and control of our lives, that we kind of are you know, masters of our fate and captains of our ships until we live life and we recognize that it's fundamentally out of control. And then there's something incredibly comforting about thinking that we actually are just like little things in the universe that are subject to forces that are beyond our control. We think we want to be in control until we live life. And it's like, no, 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 wait, wait, I'd rather actually, it's more comforting to believe that I'm a victim of things beyond my control, Mm. right? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's true. I, I do think some people don't get there. And I do think for some people, the idea of like not being in control is such a terrifying thing, you know, like kind of all the time. And I, so I, you know, I mean, I know people of all ages who do this astrology stuff or get into tarot cards or whatever. And it's just, you know, I, 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 there's so much, I, it's so funny. There is so much I could say about my dad, but I was thinking about the fortune cookie thing because we ate so much Chinese takeout and you know, there's classic jokes people do with fortune cookies, but every time my dad would get a fortune cookie in a Chinese restaurant, he would lean back in a chair very loudly and say, look like he was reading it and say, when you die, not a soul will mourn your passing. 
I keep getting that one just loud enough for everyone in the restaurant to hear him. Yeah. Uh, That is really funny. That's sort of a window into your dad's humor, too. He was. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I just it's really, you know, but again, that was like a really beautiful thing as a kid to be given because it's like it. I don't know. It it means that we can't take this stuff, this prediction stuff and all this kind of I don't know. We can't take it too seriously. Yeah. Well, speaking of like sort of lives being out of control and sort of what's going on, what is going on with the two of you? We we haven't done our check in. We did a cold open this time, you guys, like like we they did. do on HBO. What uh, <laughs> what's going on in in uh, in Heyman World in in Condon Land? Garda, you go first. You go first. What's going on in Heyman Land? A lot. I would say things continue to feel a little bit heavy these days. There's a lot of people in our sphere, in our church, in our personal life who are just going through some difficult things, you know, health challenges, strokes, mental illness, you know, all sort of stuff. So, so it's, it just feel, I'll be honest with you. It feels like a lot to carry right now, you know? And, and I think also, you know, just to continue to adjust to our new normal with one child at home, which is lovely. And Marshall continuing to adjust to being an only child and, yeah, so things are generally, I think things are objectively good, I think. But yeah, it just seems like a lot of people in our circle are having a tough time. And that's, that weighs on me a little bit. Yeah. I want to take good care of them, you know? I'm glad, it, I'm glad it weighs on you that you're not totally indifferent to it at this point, as, as most Tauruses would be, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. as we all know. Exactly. Just buck that's up a, and You've done a lot through. of self-work on your sign. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? Oh, my gosh. We're good. You know, like kids are settling into schools, which is great. It's a very different, you know, environments for them. Their dad's not in charge, and so they don't get to, like, run the joint. And so I think that's been really good for them and, and frankly, good for me to have like a lot of sort of autonomy and, you know, get to volunteer when I want to. And I don't know, I feel like we're settling in, which is great. And I feel like it's kind of the speed with which it's happened is sort of like one more sign that this is definitely where we needed to be called to. So that's you know, that's wow. good. It's really good. That's yeah. got to be a great... What's the update on the stage mom craft? What's the... Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm even more invested. I'm now on the fundraising committee. I'm also going to help with makeup. And obviously, I go every Tuesday night for two and a half hours, much to my child's chagrin. <laughs> oh, God. And, I mean, it's, it's great. Like, I love it. You know, I, I just love... You know, what he says about that group is so beautiful and I totally remember feeling so he says it's like the one place where there's no judgment like with mm, theater kids that's awesome which is like really precious yeah and very different from professional theater but I love that that's the experience he gets to have <laughs> professional theater is non-stop feedback and criticism non-stop right I mean, it's like, judgment yeah <laughs> so enjoy this don't do it later is my advice so yeah <laughs> well, for us, it was a pretty pretty good week. Kate and I celebrated our anniversary. She took got tickets to take this. me to see to Peter Gabriel. Uh, Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel awesome. played in Washington, and I happen to adore Peter Gabriel. Oh, he's I think best. he's a. I do think he's a genius. And the show was just so excellent. You know, on every level, from the musicianship, the performance, to the art. He's he's such an artist, and you know, people might know my wife is an artist. So it's just to be at something that world class after not having been to a concert in a little while was just a 
you know, felt like a real gift. I loved it. Did awesome. he play the Book of Love? He didn't do that. I mean, he favorite. played Don't That's Give like Up. my favorite song. Mm. Oh. Don't Give Up. He oh. played, and that, that was insane. But he played a lot of stuff off the new record, which I happen to adore as well. So I'm a, awesome. I'm totally, I'm all in on Peter Gabriel, and I think everyone else should be too. It's it was it was like a, a life affirming event, and sort of to be exposed to that degree of thoughtfulness and ingenuity, and and just to, it was really great. So awesome. So awesome. Leave Dave. it at that, and realize how precious those times are at this, this stage in the game. Well, today we're going to, as we sort of alluded to already, time to, we haven't talked about boys and men in a long time. I'm ready. And everywhere you turn right now, people are talking about boys and men. And what I've noticed particularly... And boys to men. uh, No, continue. Can we have a minute for boys to men, too? It's so hard to say goodbye. You know? Oh my God! Uh. I'll make love to you like most awkward middle school dance song ever. Sarah, it's totally Mississippi public school. Come on oh now, people got pregnant. You know. That's right. uh, okay, but what sorry. about that wonder guy with the cane and the deep voice? I mean, that was uh. he was he really. Uh. It really hit it. He was really turning some heads at that Motown day. Philly. Yes. Motown oh, right. Philly. That was just yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> on that note, back to boys and men. We, Got it. We have not come back to, to the end of men. the road. We have not okay. come to the end of the road. Yeah, but so what's interesting is so there there seems to be a growing consensus that boys and men are suffering and they're in trouble sort of in an acute and particular way and what I've noticed was this past summer and then into the fall there's more and more women writing about this. Like, in fact, the two articles we're going to talk about today are are long think pieces from ladies about what is going on with men. How do we deal with this? And, you know, in fact, this past week, there was just a, yet another thing about college admissions and how the thumb has got to be on the scale to get more boys into school. And it's, 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 over and over again, we're hearing about this. And RJ is one of four boys, as some, if you know, I'm one of three boys. I have three boys. RJ has three boys. Sarah is raising a boy and married to one. And I think I'm just fascinated to hear what you guys have to say. And it's it's uncomfortable. You know, I think part of, in fact, part of what we're going to talk about is just how uncomfortable it is to talk about this subject without defaulting to kind of various scripts. RJ, I can notice him squirming as we speak. Do you want to, do you want mean, to preface this with anything? I've got a story. I've got a story I can tell. Yeah. Okay. We got an email. Before we read. We got an email okay. on Monday afternoon from Marshall's first grade teacher letting us know that he'd gone to the bathroom like 10 times on Monday and just wanted to make sure that everything was physically okay. So Jamie took him to the doctor Tuesday morning, and the doctor said, yes, everything is fine. But is he getting enough time to kind of, you know, be physically active during the school day? And we shared his first grade schedule, which is about, you know, it's he's in school for seven hours. And I think they've got a 25 minute recess period, something like that, which we know this. We know that this is true. And we worked with his teacher last year everywhere. And his doctor literally said she was like, would you like me to write a letter? to the school, to the teacher, letting them know that he needs more time to run around because he's physically fine, but maybe he just needs to get up and take a walk, you know, for God's yeah. sake. So it's it's real. And I'm sure if you've seen, we've talked about Raising Cain before, that PBS documentary, but it's hard out there for first grade boys who can't sit still it and is. have to do endless, it is. meaningless worksheets. 
you know, and are are not allowed to talk about death. I will also say our wonderful new director of children's and youth ministry, we're going through the Storymakers Exodus series. The Mm. boys, our upper elementary boys, third, fifth graders, were not terribly interested in the midwives. But when we started talking (laughs) about Pharaoh killing Jews, they got really interested. Really? They might, there might be some death here. There might be some blood. It's like, there's a lot of that in the Bible. So yeah. All right. That's all I got to say. Dave. Well, this is from Christine Emba, who wrote about this in the Washington Post. It made all of the kind of, it was circulated throughout the summer. And she's, I think she's a a journalist of some renown at this point. And the title was Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. Because what we're seeing is a shift from not just talking about how men are in trouble, but also what needs to be done. The, The much more risky part is talking about sort of, you know, something prescriptive. She said that she's noticed a curdling in some of the men around her, that they struggle to relate to women, that they just don't have enough friends. We've talked about that before. They lacked long-term goals. Some guys I knew just quietly disappeared, subsumed into video games and porn, and sucked into the alt-right manosphere. It felt like a widespread identity crisis, as if they didn't know how to be. Then she sort of traces the historical part of it. She says, worrying about the state of our men is an American tradition. But today's problems are real and well-documented. Deindustrialization, automation, free trade, and peacetime have shifted the labor market dramatically and not in men's favor. The need for physical labor has declined while soft skills and academic credentials are increasingly rewarded. Growing numbers of working-age men have detached from the labor market with the highest drop in employment being among men ages 25 to 34. Meanwhile, women are surging ahead in school and in the workplace, putting a further dent in the quote-unquote provider model that has long been ingrained in our conception of masculinity. Men now receive, and I did not know this, about 74 bachelor degrees for every 100 awarded to women. And men account for more than 70% of the decline in college enrollment. In 2020, nearly half of women reported in an American trade survey that they out-earn or make the same amount as their husbands or partners, a huge jump from fewer than 4% in 1960. Then there's the domestic sphere. Last summer, a Psychology Today article caused a stir online by pointing out that, quote, dating opportunities for heterosexual men are diminishing as relationship standards rise. There's, been a, there's actually been a couple of articles this week about men just dropping out of the dating pool. because yeah, like they, AI they, girlfriends, right? I saw an article about AI girlfriends, yeah. which is insane, but yeah. And then the big one is men also account for almost three out of four deaths of despair, either from suicide, alcohol abuse, or an overdose. Now, of course, because men still dominate leadership positions in government and corporations, many assume they're doing fine and bristle at male complaint. Women are still dealing with centuries of male domination that haven't been fully accounted for or rectified. Are we really worrying that men feel a little emasculated because their female classmates are doing well? She says, well, we should still care, basically. She says, past models of masculinity feel unreachable or socially unacceptable. New ones have yet to crystallize. What are men for in the modern world? What do they look like? Where do they fit? So far, only the right, sort of people on the far end of the political right, have given any answers. She interviewed one undergraduate who was sort of like a, identified himself as sort of kind of a moderate guy. He says he doesn't identify with the manosphere, but he can understand why others might. He said, I feel like there's a lot of room to be proudly feminine, but there's not, in my opinion, the same room to be proudly masculine. 
And to the extent that any vision of non-toxic masculinity is proposed, it ends up sounding more like stereotypical femininity than anything else. Guys should learn to be more sensitive, quiet, and socially apt, seemingly overnight. Then Emba goes, she says, I strongly suspect that ending this crisis will require a positive vision of what masculinity entails that is particular, that's neither neutral nor interchangeable with femininity. And still, I find myself reluctant to fully articulate one. So before we go into the, there's a lot more that I'm going to read. Where do you guys, what do you guys think about this? I see this in my own children. I do see the school system as, as, you know, it's all my kids' teachers are women and all the administrators seem to be women. And, and, and there's, there does seem to be a lack of, you know, prioritization of things like physical movement. And we've all had these, I've had these calls from all my boys about them being rambunctious or too rambunctious. Yeah. But what do you, is this made up? What's up? Yeah, I mean, I remember just saying to Josh one day, like, I wish schools would just put a sign up that says, like, we're great for well-behaved girls, because it would just be easier, you know, <laughs> to be like, that's not going to work for my kid. Yeah. I I mean, this it's, it's an interesting, right, like, thing to walk into as a woman, because part of me is pretty vindictive when I hear this, and it's like, yeah, well, you've run the show for a long time. Mm. Suck it up, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Other, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I, that's not my whole feeling. I don't lack empathy. But it's like when I think about the years of oppression as a woman, I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, like there were housewives that opened up ovens and stuck their whole head in. Like, yeah, uh. it sucks to feel like like you don't have a purpose. That is a very difficult thing to feel like you don't have a purpose. I do love her compassion that she's like, it may, it, it is easy to slip in that space as a woman where it's like, okay, you know, and yet this is something we should care deeply, deeply about because we do have sons and, you know, I have a husband and, and fathers and, you know, I would say what really kind of has shifted my perspective on this. And I'm sure I've talked about this book before, but Terrence reels, I don't want to talk about it about masculinity and depression and rage, you know, it's changed the way I see men. Uh, just an example, the other day I went to Goodwill and I was parked. There's a certain way you go to Goodwill and this older white guy, nicely dressed, nice car was parked the wrong way. And so I kind of turned my vehicle around. So it was facing his. And so, but that was the right way to do it. And I'm just following protocol and I could tell he was annoyed with me doing that, but I was like, it'll be fine. It's a big parking lot. He can figure it out. And as he drove by me, he rolled down his window and looked at me and said, you're a stupid bitch. Oof. And instead of feeling deep anger, I did feel unsafe, which mm. I also want to say is a thing women deal with all the time. Mm. I thought, because I've read Terrence Reel's book, I thought, oh, he's depressed. He's dealing with rage. Mm. He feels lost in this world. And depression often looks like rage in men, which I do think explains a lot of the kind of far-right answers to masculinity that we're seeing. 
I would also say there's some great resources that have been really helpful for me to understand kind of what's going on with guys just in terms of podcasts. So Justin Baldoni, who was on Jane the Virgin, he was sort of like the cutie love interest, has a podcast called Man Enough. And they deal with a lot of the stuff and bring on a lot of different people and actually have written it. He wrote a wonderful book for adolescent boys that Neil loved. And so I do think there are real resources out there, but yeah, I mean, I think this is like a huge frightening problem in some way because men are still in charge, even if they are feeling this kind of lostness. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's it's a it's a complicated, Dave. I thought for certain you were gonna you were gonna say that you shot back at him and said, "Well, I am a Scorpio, so suck <laughs> it." <laughs> I just was like, "Whoa, like whoa, you you woke up like that? That sucks, you yeah. know? Like that's mm-hmm. it's just so yeah. I I don't. I mean, I the dating stuff is terrifying to me. I will say that. Like this stuff of like, and I do see on Instagram all the time, these women who I saw one yesterday and she's like, literally starts with like young woman, men are horrible. We can all agree. And I was like, whoa, sis, right out the gate. And she's like, here are all the reasons they're horrible, but I'm a straight woman, which means I have to date men. Mm -hmm. So how do I do that? And then she said the saddest thing, which was, I just want to see what a long-term relationship with a man was like. And this one was probably 25 years old. Yeah. And I'm like, she's never had that. So I don't know, rant over, but no, it's RJ, very, what do you I'm, think? I'm dying. I was, yeah, I was so interested to hear what you thought of this, Sarah, because you have a, one of your most viral things you ever wrote was about totally sort of stop blaming the boys or like it was kind of a- well because Brene Brown writes beautifully about this yeah. right about how it's so easy for women to find vulnerability and be vulnerable in spaces and then the second that men do it we want to shut them down especially you know and this is what's so interesting not maybe in the public sphere we'll like affirm it but babe when your husband comes home and he's like I don't know about this job I'm really having a hard time that's when we it's in our it's in our homes it's in our kitchens Get it out where we will shut down the vulnerability of our husbands and our sons and that's particularly dangerous if you're talking about a sense of despair all right, RJ, what are, you, what are you thinking? I don't know what to think. I, I'll first of all say that, I've said this before, like one of the highlights of my week every week is leading my Thursday morning men's group, which is like 20 guys. And it's just so fun, you know? And we study the Bible and we talk about real things. And I think there's a level of, I think, camaraderie and vulnerability and just love there that is really, really wonderful and rare. And I, I'm sort of surprised by that because there was definitely a time in my life, my younger life, when I was pretty, like men kind of scared me. I think I was scared of my father mm-hmm. and, I, and I mapped that yeah. fear on. So, so the fact now that I can say like, I love, like I never thought of myself as like a man's man, you know, <laughs> but like yeah. I can honestly say like, I, li- I really like guys and I, I like, I, li- I love men. I love their energy and, and often their their honesty and their vulnerability and their, I don't know, I, it, it's a good thing. I don't know what the answer is. I think it, there is, there's something about physicality. There is something about physicality, right? That, that, and I, sure. I feel this. 
I, I know I need more exercise, but I'm like, when the hell am I supposed to do that? Unless I get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, you know, like Dave, you do F3, right? Which is like way early in the morning. And I love to run around. I love to play tennis. I love to play basketball. But when you have this full-time job and you're trying to be a good father and a good husband and a good friend and a good pastor, it's like, when do you find time to do that? And it reminds me of this book I read a few years ago called The Taken about white children in Texas in the late 19th century who got kidnapped by Native American tribes. The boys did not want to come back, <laughs> you know, because they spent their li- <laughs> like their lives as settlers in Texas, like German-American settlers were like, you were living in a mud hut and you were like farming all day and you were alone and it sucked. And then suddenly you got kidnapped by the Native American tribe and you're like riding horses and hunting all day and like going wherever the hell you want and no one is telling you what to do. And it's like, and they were never the same. And you're not having to wear a shirt. That's I mean, right. like, it's like tag, 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 Yes, tag. yes. Yeah. And you're probably like finding cliffs to jump off of and you're doing, now, mm-hmm. now the, the women had slightly different experiences who were kidnapped, yeah, I will I say. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Be that, be that as it goes. may. But the, yeah. the, the men who were kidnapped, they never, they never reassimilated. They ended up living by themselves in caves and stuff. And they're like, we can't go back. We cannot go back to this this kind of European button-down world. We can't do it anymore. Mm. So I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that men are, are starved for spaces where they can just kind of feel comfortable being themselves and telling the truth and being slightly in always – Mostly appropriate ways, being a little bit off color. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. no, we're not talking like, uh, you know, locker room talk or whatever. Like, I don't want to, you know, bring shadows of that back in. But just the freedom to feel like they don't have to be perfect all the time. And I'm sure women feel exactly the same way, right? Like, just this pressure to do everything right all the time and to always, I don't know. I don't, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, totally. And female-only spaces are, like, super important for my mental health, yes. right? Like, yes. and I think they're super – I mean, it's part of the reason. Our son is – hear me out – not in scouts because we're trying to do the eagle thing because we've been trying to find a troop. And there are people who are like, well, if he does this, this is like a machine that pushes out eagles. And I was like, not for us. We need the chill one. That's nice. And just because I think he needs to be in male-only spaces, like, that's super important for him. Yeah. And it's funny to me that men are always like the ones that we talk about, like, oh, like off color or whatever. When they get together, women are just as trashy totally. in our own yes, way. Thank you. Thank and you. we derive great joy from yes. that. You know thank what I mean? Yes. Like, I love when my friends but it feels send me less these dangerous. memes. That the women doing it feels less dangerous. It, it's meaner. It's meaner, yes, but it's less dangerous. But, you know, <laughs> when we'll, send st- we'll send each other a text that's dangerous. like... Yeah, that'll say, you know, oh, my God, do you have five minutes? I need to complain about something. That is my favorite text to get one of my friends, you know, from one of my friends. So I, I, I think those spaces are, like, important for us. I don't want men in every space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of it. There's a cultural ambivalence about saying that men and women are very different. And, like, right, the, so, totally. so if you can't say that, well, then, then if there's no difference, then they should all just be together all the time. And that's just blatantly not true and no one until you have children until you actually have children and then you're like oh wait maybe there's something to this maybe kids just sort of come out the way they come out and i have a lot less control than you know yeah i I do find myself at this stage in the game very less interested in hearing about gender from anyone who doesn't have children i just that that's a that doesn't mean you can't talk about it and write about it about your own experience however it's just 
I've just watched it shift for so many people once they have kids, and they thought, oh my gosh, I thought everything was socialized, and here here I am, and I, I never have, I don't care about cars, and that's all my son wants to do. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I just think about like when we had Neil, who's our first, I was like, gender neutrals, like we're going to blah, 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 blah for everything, and then when I found out I was pregnant with a girl, I was like, paint the room purple, exactly. you know, we need and Josh was like, what are you doing? Yeah. So, well, yeah. so they do, she does go into some prescriptions and some talk about this because I mm. I have a lot to say, but I'm going to let's just read a little bit more from Christine. She interviews Scott Galloway, who actually we've talked about before. He's a professor in New York. He says, where I think this conversation has come off the tracks is where being a man is essentially trying to ignore all masculinity and act more like a woman. And even some women who say that, they don't want to have sex with those guys. They may believe they're right and think it's a good narrative, but they don't want to partner with those men. Mm. And Emba says, I, a heterosexual woman, cringed in recognition. And mm. this is, I find this to be very true. That like, there Me were, too, there, girl. <laughs> Me too. Uh, <laughs> Galloway uh, leaned into the screen. So basically the actual sexual politics reinforce the attraction of kind of, you know, stoic, strong masculinity, while the public discourse doesn't. So there's another narrative or disconnect going on in how we actually live versus how we want to say we live. She said, Galloway leaned into the screen. My view is that for masculinity, a decent place to start is garnering skills and strength that you can advocate for and protect others with. If you're really strong and smart, you will garner enough power, influence, and kindness to begin protecting others. That's it. Full stop. Real men protect other people. She also talks about Richard Reeves, who's written his book on boys and men, which has gotten a lot of play, especially sort of in more like blue state circles. His recipe for masculine success echoed Galloway's proactiveness, agency, risk-taking, and courage, but with a pro-social cast. Emba says, this tracked with my intuitions about what good masculinity might look like, the sort I, that I actually admire, and the sort that women I know find attractive, but often can't seem to find at all. So, what would creating a positive vision of masculinity look like? Recognizing distinctiveness, but not pathologizing it. Finding new ways to valorize it and tell a story that is appealing to young men and socially beneficial, rather than ceding ground to those who would warp a perceived difference into something ugly and destructive. The other article that sort of prompted us talking about this today is Caitlin Flanagan wrote a long thing in The Atlantic called In Praise of Heroic Masculinity, where she says the Opposite of toxic masculinity is heroic masculinity. It's all around us. You depend on it for your safety, as I do. It's almost entirely taken for granted, even reviled until trouble comes, and it is ungratefully demanded by the very people who usually decry it. She says, one obdurate fact exists far beyond the shores of theory and stands on the bedrock of rude truth. Men, as a group and to a significant extent, are larger, faster, and stronger than women. This cannot be disputed and it cannot be understood as some irrelevancy because it comes with an obvious moral question that each man must answer for himself. What will he use his strength to do? Will he use it to dominate the weak or to protect them? I like this. I think they're really trying. These are two women who are kind of self-described, you know, career-driven, ambitious feminist women who are saying, and yet there's something that we actually find attractive about men that is distinctive and has something to do with protection heroicism, and yes, providing, I would add the word sacrifice in there. 
I think that that's a very attractive male quality. It's and it, you when they all say, well, to say this means you're saying that women some aren't heroic. He's like, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. However, you know, for me, I always I have to punt back a little bit to Taylor Swift because you watch the the footage of these concerts, and while there is a lot of disdain for men and the sort of you know stomp the patriarchy type of stuff. Taylor's songs are almost all about how much she loves men. <laughs> like she yeah. she had a good dad and she doesn't just love men, she desires men. Part, I think, of the appeal is this vast unspoken thing to say, actually, I'm yearning for a good man. And this is, there's a lot of women out there who are yearning for the same thing. And I find that to be interesting. I mean, I'm of the sort of, I guess, the, the low anthropology perspective that... I think that human beings need each other, that we're not self-sufficient. Yeah. And I think that, that when that high anthropology gets translated into the gender realm, it usually looks like women don't need men and men don't need women. And I don't think that's true. I think that we not only need one another, I think men certainly need women. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who's, who's pretty yeah. ambivalent. I mean, I love, I, I've come to rely on all male spaces, but, you know, in terms of my own peers, the, the way that... I'm just going to say it, the way that golf and sports dominate everything, and usually those are ways to, I think they often coded ways to get away from women. Mm. But mm-hmm. I, I, a business, I, finance is a, is a little bit that way too, especially in the sort of academic realm or the college realm. So I don't identify with that as a 44-year-old man, but it seems to consume almost all, the vast majority of my peers, not, not all, but vast majority of my peers. And so I feel like I'm an outlier and not being into those things. And then I see them as scripts that are almost like desperately clung to because that's all people know. And it doesn't, isn't to say you can't be genuinely interested in golf or sports and I'm, or hunting. Or, you keep leaving the one out. Yeah. That well, that's the that, southeastern that, section of the United States. Yeah. That's the hardest for me to, to even talk about because I just have no experience with it. And so I, I'm ambivalent about middle-aged men. I think they're largely to blame for this crisis. <laughs> I think that they're, it's and the insecurity and the inability to kind of not surrender or run away in, in every significant way to the golf course. I blame men for that mostly. And yet I also think one of the things that both of these women identify and that's equally inconvenient and it's very hard to talk about especially on the left because people are so uncomfortable with ever wanting to shame single moms is that the lack of fathers has plays a huge role in a sort of the cultivation of positive masculinity a lot of the stuff on the far right is is guys looking for substitute dads they haven't had them and it it boils down to dad's sticking around and and the, the prediction for your son's future is correlated way too tightly and inconveniently to the presence of a male role model. And it's, again, it's not to say that somehow single moms are, are they're doing the best they can. However, the way that men have sort of bail on these responsibilities, I find to be deeply distressing. So that's, and I, I want to talk about this theologically a little bit too, but do you guys have any response to... I got some response. First of all, another shout out to Boy Scouts for any single moms that listen. I know that has been such a beautiful space for a lot of single mothers in my life to literally, A, just drop your kid off and not have to worry about them, but also B, to be around really positive male influences in their life. So I, there, you know, and there are spaces that, you know, there's the Boys and Girls Club, like there's spaces that 
have accessibility to that. And I, I thank God for those spaces. Do I think they replace having a dad around? No, but I thank God for those spaces. You know, one thing that I often think of in working in the church, the broader church, that's fascinating to me. You know, I have a lot of women that come to me because of this podcast or whatever, who have grown up in denominations that are really hard on women, where they've suffered, you know, abuse and been told to still be faithful, where, you know, their sort of appearance has been moralized since they were children. And I'm always like fascinated by, fascinated slash horrified by this way of being in the church, because these are also the churches that talk about protection of women so much, (laughs) right? Like they talk about gender in these more far, far right circles and they are really bad at it. Like, I always wonder, like, what would happen if they actually protected women? Like, how remarkable would that be? And I don't mean they have to ordain them. Hear me. I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be interesting if they really meant it, you know? And in fact, I had a conversation with a gentleman who was on a, a bishop staff because I knew of a clergy person who they were talking about calling who had a track record of abusive behavior with women. And this was a more kind of conservative diocese. And I called and I said, look, you know, I don't know about y'all calling this guy. And the gentleman I talked to them was like, well, you know, this bishop really likes to take care of, you know, (laughs) broken toys. And I said, yeah, but y'all are so conservative and you're always talking about the protection of women in conservative Christianity and you're not doing it at all right now. Like, walk me through this, you know? And I want it on a file that I said this. (laughs) And they did not end up, and I have no idea if it was me or something else, but they did not end up calling him. And, you know, so I do, and that's in my tradition. So I do want to say the Episcopal Church is not immune to this at all. But I, I do wonder that, like, as a Christian, I'm like, what would that look like, though, if those churches that are like, we want to protect women, like, truly protected them, protected their ability to look like they want, to say what they want, protected their ability, you know, to find safety when they're in abusive marriages? Like, wouldn't that be incredible? Hmm. Yeah. In my own mind, I'm just coming full circle. Like, I'm thinking about Marshall, and I'm thinking about, you know, if he can't sit still for seven hours a day— why is it that the vision, the upper, cl- the upper middle class vision of masculinity is basically that you would go to and sit in an office and kind of be sedentary, like eight or nine, ten hours a day, and then you're expected to come home and be emotionally present, S- sit still more, right? Help with homework, put the kids to bed, help with dinner, like do all this sort of stuff. And I just wonder if if, if that's why guys become alcoholics. <laughs> That's why they get depressed. That's why they, you know, because we're not designed to do that. And I do sort of wonder, like, then I thought, well, what about guys who live in more, who who work in more physically demanding professions? Like, I wonder if they're more mentally healthy, you know, guys who are doing landscaping or construction or or something physical where there's camaraderie and, 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 and maybe there's physical exhaustion, but there's also more mental resources to actually be present for your family and not have to go play golf all weekend. You know, I mean, I, I just want to cut in and say real quick, the most healthy man I know with the most group of friends who seems happy as a lark every time I'm around him is my uncle who's a farmer. Yeah. 
Huh. So I'm like, I, I'm thinking about my own life. Like, how would the lives of men who have office jobs then be different if they said, you know what? I think the, the best school I ever went to, the best school my boys ever went to for boys was an all-boys school in New York City, which we just loved. And they would go to class from like 8 in the morning till about 12, 31 o'clock. And then they could play sports for two or three hours every afternoon. And then they would come home and like they were ready to do home. They were ready to sit down and do homework. You know what I yeah. mean? Because I think that school understood that boys could only sit still for about four or five hours a day before they went crazy. And then I remember talking to Marshall's kindergarten teacher last year, God bless her, who's a wonderful teacher but was new to teaching. And she's like, yeah, I noticed the boys start going crazy at about 1.30 or 2 every afternoon. And I'm like, yeah, like that's about the, the limit. And so I, not to boil it down to that, but I, I do – like you're <clears throat> right. Men have checked out, Dave. It, it, that is true. But I also want to say like why have they checked out? What is, what is it about the structures of our life or the, the things they've been told or the ways they've been told they ought to be that maybe they just – it's not actually physically possible, <laughs> you know, for, yeah, there, to there do all these a, things? You know, remember the wonderful – I thought it was great, at least in the Barbie movie when America Ferrara has like this sort of rant about the double standards yes. that women are opposed to. Do, yeah. You know, I, I think there is a corollary one for men. I don't going to get me wrong. I think totally. there are like, are you being asked to, you know, you know be – constantly told me that you need to be more vulnerable and then when you are people flip out or yeah. or you know you being told that every woman is lonely and wants a man and then when you try to date her and be emotionally available she it turns out she's not actually attracted to that so it's like it's not a apples and oranges thing it's not a zero sum thing i don't want to say that it's somehow worse or better but there is a bunch of double binds law, based, little L laws that men live under. And it is fairly contextual. I remember being interviewed with a podcast that was a sort of a, some guys in a very red state circumstances. And they were like, so what do you think the problem is facing society? What are some of the, f-? I said, well, one of them I think is the inability to articulate anything positive about masculinity that's distinctly masculine. And they were saying, that's so funny because that's all we talk about in our context. And I was like, well, we don't talk about it. No one will touch it with a 10-foot pole in the blue state context in which I live because we're so frightened. And I mean, I've thought about writing a book about this, but I'm just too scared. I'm just too scared. I don't want to enter into that. The thing as a Christian that I have a real hard time with is when the strength thing is held up. I get, yes, you know, I, I was watching the NFL with my boys the other night. These guys are enormous, you know, but they also talk about self-mastery and discipline being these masculine virtues that all sound sort of militaristic in my mind. And and maybe in the sort of caveman code of hunting and gathering, there is a sense in which that's encoded in the DNA of what it means to be a man. But as a Christian who follows Jesus, I think he, it's strength and weakness. I, I do think Jesus gives up strength. Maybe that's the form, form of protection. But I also think this idea that we just need to be the masters of ourselves and kind of not need anyone and everyone need us, like that to me is, that just conflicts with a vision yeah. of the faith that I think it means to well, be and repentance too. Violence. And dependent <laughs> yeah. violence. And, and no. I, it's, I find it to be much more courageous when people, when I watch people uh, give up or, or sort of surrender the, you know, if people haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge recently, you know, watch that. Holy it's moly. A, that's the sort of deeper courage is to, to lay down your arms in when it most feels. So I guess as a Christian, it's very ironic to me when I see, especially conservative Christians, hold on to these very manly things, which seem to be so non 
Jesus-y. And Jesus clearly wasn't, you know, he, he still is identifiable to me as a man. Like he's, he's still kind of confident and, 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 and says what he thinks and sacrifices himself for the sake of yeah, those he loves. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I find that to be Which stirring. Which is not a weak thing. And so, you know, like it's an interest. I hadn't thought about that as like a weak and a strong thing, right? Because we, it is a sense of like, there, there is a sense of like relenting to violence, like on himself, but it, which seems weak, but it's on our behalf, which seems very strong. And so yeah. I totally agree. And I, I do think this sense of like, isolation and what's interesting to me is a lot of those sort of I like how you say red states it's like so much nicer than saying like right (laughs) I know what you're doing but a lot of these like red state spaces are not Christian anymore you know what I mean like some of them are and yes we can have a whole conversation about the nationalism of Christianity but a lot of them are not Christian anymore and So they're like, there's no, this community aspect, which we see all over the Bible. I mean, Jesus has all these guy friends. (laughs) Like, it's really important. Jesus is a protector in scripture. Like, I think about the woman at the well. I think about him intervening when the the guy's ear gets cut off. Help me, RJ. You're the Bible guy. Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, yeah. In the Garden of Gethsemane. There are these beautiful moments. I guess what I wanted to say at first is I do, though, think it's a real tension, right? Because so much of what we've been talking about is sort of the the attempted feminization of masculinity. It does kind of come from Jesus, and it comes from the New Testament, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Like when I think about men's men in the Bible, I think about all Old Testament people. I think about David. I think about Samson, right? I think about those that may be Solomon. Or like I, those are the men, you know, I, Israel wrestling with God, right? All, all the sort of stereotypically manly masculine stuff happens in the Old Testament, but also those are like broken sinners. And then as you were talking about Jesus and his disciples and being together, I guess the, the, the part of the New Testament that feels stereotypically masculine to me is the spirit of adventure, right? Going to do, like Paul travels the world to share the good news. The apostles spread out over the face of the earth. Thomas goes to India, right? Maybe that's where I can connect with a more, with, with my own thirst as a man. Like I do have this thirst to go places, to go on adventure, to, to, to travel, to take risks, and I see that in the page of the New Testament, but I don't see the kind of David slaying Goliath, you know, type masculinity that's more, you know, stereotypically. And I do think, I, I know you guys, you laugh at me when I talk about this. I always think about the Robert Zemeckis Beowulf, when Be- which is horrible. But when Beowulf is talking to the monk and he says, your Christ God killed all of my heroes— and there's something oh, true yeah. about that, that the vision of heroism that Jesus brings is not the Beowulf vision. It's not slaying the monster. It's not slaying the dragon, right? It's, it's being killed yourself. And there's something so beautiful about that. But it's also true and frustrating if you're a man who just has this impulse every so often to, like, do something violent, you know? Conquer. To conquer, <clears throat> yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, you see it. Yeah, I remember one more thing. I remember Mike Singletary, the great middle linebacker, Hall of Fame for the Chicago Bears, who if you see him in not in football uniform, he looks like he looks like he should be the Cosby show. He wears sweaters, he has these oversized glasses, he's very mild, very soft spoken, very mild mannered. And someone asked him once in an interview, 
Mike, what is it that you miss most about football? And he thought about it for a second. He said, very quietly said, I, I really miss the violence. I miss the violence, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it was a strike. He needed it. He needed to step on the field and like have a place to be violent. And I think there That's is something inside each, each man that has a little bit of that. And I'm not sure it's sanctified. I don't know if it's good, but I also don't know what the hell to do with it. Yeah, but it's also we're also dealing with the same week that this comes out as when Taylor Swift was sort of Travis Kelsey observed at Travis yeah. Kelsey. You know, he's this yeah. insanely great football player who's out there wrecking you know guys and and you know and scoring touchdowns and stuff like that. And again, sometimes her popularity strikes me as is not just that men need women, but women needing men and dying for a good man. And the ones she's settled on right now. <laughs> Couldn't be more sort of archetypal yes. male yes. guys. That's who she actually, I mean, she, she wants to be an ally with the nice guys, but then the one she wants to date is that guy. So anyway. Look, Jake Gyllenhaal seemed like a nice guy and he was not. Yeah, so see? anyway. It's very, well, let's talk about a very uh, kind of a, a story of grace involving a man, which I I know all of us have watched this week. It's this a documentary called The Saint of Second Chances. The Saint of Second Chances on Netflix. It is about, well, it begins with the former Chicago White Sox owner, Bill Veck, who just seems like the most delightful guy who in Chicago sort of introduced all sorts of fun into baseball. And then, but the story, the, 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 the thing is actually about his son, Mike, who loves his dad, but also, you know, does not sort of live up to his dad. So I'll read a little bit from this uh, interview that uh, so this review in the Daily Beast called Why Baseball Doc the Saint of Second Chances is Making Grown Men Cry. Here you go. Bill, the older man, had a peg leg, a fondness for beer, and a gregarious personality. He was a peerless showman, but he's not the primary subject here. Rather, that would be his son, Mike, who grew up in the shadow of his famous father and instinctively took after him, a fact that became apparent when he joined his dad's White Sox staff. Nonetheless, for all Bill's popularity, he wasn't wealthy. Having hustled his way into purchasing the team, he and the White Sox were severely strapped for cash. Mike thus became the de facto head of promotions, tasked with concocting any stunt that might put butts in the seats. And what he came up with, July 12th, 1977, was the disco demolition event. So the people who know that everyone brought their disco records, disco was at a high watermark, and they had this, they, they blew up boxes of records, and you got in for less money if you brought a disco record. It became a huge riot. And Mike, it sort of led to Bill having to sell the team and Mike certainly losing his job. He took the fall for the fiasco. And for Mike, drinking and exile ensued until he received, at his lowest moment, I might say, a fortuitous opportunity to change his life. The chance to invest in the St. Paul Saints, an independent league team that was at the bottom of the proverbial barrel. With the support of his wife, Libby, who's, by the way, amazing. amazing. Mike took his shot with the enthusiasm and creativity he'd inherited from his Pied Piper dad, employing every and any trick in the book. Hot tubs in the outfield, pigs that delivered the balls to umpires, a disgraced nun giving massages to fans to raise That's attendance. <laughs> part circus, part party, the Saints, which were co-owned by Bill Murray, were an outgrowth of Mike's Anything Goes personality and quickly became a phenomenon. Well, there's a story in there that's, well, there's, there's a lot of stories in this insanely beautiful documentary, but one of them is that Mike really made baseball fun, and in order to do that, he wanted to redeem the broken, the discarded, and the disgraced. He was, they said, this is where, the, you went to the St. Saint Paul Saints when you needed your fourth, second chance. And this sort of tendency peaked 
when he gave the blacklisted Daryl Strawberry, one of my childhood heroes, a spot in his lineup alongside Super Dave Stevens with no legs. So good. It's, it's so good. It's so good. And they're stand. I mean, they're one of them is standing and one of them is sort of standing and they're there together. And you're just like, oh my God, this is like a vision of heaven. What is this? Dave Stevens is a player who literally is a legless baseball player. He becomes friends with Daryl Strawberry and Daryl Strawberry says, this man, he, he was only in the documentary, Daryl, because he knew Dave was going to be in the documentary. And oh my God. it redeemed. He said, I, I finally got my love of the game back. Remember his nickname uh, for him when they're talking in the outfield? He says, what would your nickname for me be? And Daryl says, uh, Stud. And he goes, wait, he says, Stub or Stud? He goes, no, Stud. <laughs> just, well, let's yeah. talk about it. What do you guys think of this this insanely great documentary? I mean, I, I do want to say men are not the only people that have complicated relationships with their fathers. Mm. And so I definitely... It was interesting to me to think about being this sort of whimsical progeny of someone who you just wanted to impress, mm. right? So I actually did a little research because I was like, his dad had a peg leg. Like, where did that? He, of course, it's a it's a military injury. Of course, it is. You know, mm. and he actually had a, an ashtray installed on his peg leg. <laughs> For convenience what? sake. So if you can imagine growing up with a dad who was oh that much God. of a hard ass, you know what I mean? And to sort of like find your way through that to also like have this moment where you, cause he, Mike does this crazy thing and to try to get people in and it goes south so quickly. And I mean, they talked about how he broke his dad's heart and then to still try to find a way together. Like, I don't know. It was just so moving to me. I, lo- I loved it. I mean, I, we cried from beginning to end. I'm on serious antidepressants, so crying is like a whole feat for me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it takes work. And I was like, oh, my God, I needed this. This was so beautiful. You know, and Mike and his wife do face, I don't want to give it away, but death in a very real way. And the way that they, like, graciously navigated that and also – his wife sitting him down and essentially saying, you're working too much, right? You're missing mm-hmm. these children growing up and him letting go was just so, it was just so moving. It was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, when he's about to not sign Daryl Strawberry, who's been turned down by something like 200 teams and his wife basically says, if you don't give this guy a, th- a 50th chance or whatever you uh, you are not worthy of 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 who you are and he said and he sort of turned he, he's like she was absolutely right like i've needed 200 second chances myself so yeah he goes ahead and he does it the bad idea frequently this guy the bad idea is the good idea and i mean this this wife by the way libby who who somehow sees something in him when he is at his absolute lowest it's talk about the kind of uh, what a man is dying to have happen in in his life is this woman believe in him when he quote unquote doesn't believe in himself and it's over the top, there, there's, he hires a female pitcher who's like, who's only ever been booed for. And she says, she says, you know, it was just, it took me a long time to get used to people not booing for me. And you're just like, what am I? Legless fielders. There's a nun who gets, who had been thrown out of her convent, who says that she imagines massaging the body of Christ when she's giving massages to people. And Micah simply is like, oh yeah, she was the goods. <laughs> <laughs> 
RJ, what was, what was your response? I just thought the movie, it was just endless death and resurrection. It was just one death mm. and resurrection over and over again. From his teenage years where he thought that baseball was the least cool thing in the world and was just rejecting his father to experiencing his father's love to the disco fiasco to losing the team to like a period of what sounds like a pretty awful maybe decade of his life, right, where he descends into drugs and alcohol, he has a kid, he gets divorced, he loses the kids, he, and then this woman comes into his life, raises him to new life, he can, and then he gets invited to this, you know, lead this minor league team. But I did find maybe the m most affecting was when he gets back in the majors, he achieves the dream, you know, 20 years later, he's invited back in. This is insane, by it's the way. It's insane. The, the, how it plays out, yes. And, and then he quits. A week later, yeah. he climbs the mountain, he reaches the top, he gets back to where he's always wanted to be, and then he says, no, something else is more important. That was really affecting. That was really... And to say, no, I'm going to go do what actually makes me happy, what actually is what I'm called to, and, and let go of what I thought was my dream, because it turns out it's not. It wasn't. It wasn't yeah. my dream. That was really powerful. Yeah. And we can't spoil the ending, because just no. know that there's... Uh, <clears throat> Very powerful relationship he has with his daughter, and yeah. um, the way that he cares for her is will just make anyone cry. It's just the and, most amazing and thing. And just the the timing of finding out information feels miraculous to me. I will say that you know, just the way that they only knew some things and then they had all this time was just incredible. Like what a miracle, you know, what an absolute yeah. miracle. It's like that, just that sense of like God. God is always at work in this in this way that like the timing just is astonishing. I mean, we say this over and over again, but like it's truly astonishing. Yeah, there are a few things were said that will stick with me. One is a dream he has, in which his father says to him, "It's not whether you win or lose. It's just it's showing up. You know, it's just showing up, which mm -hmm. is kind of a uh, Woody Allen thing." And then Daryl Strawberry when he's talking about reconnecting to his love of the game and saying. I don't want to be a superstar. Like I'm not that important. I just want to. I just want to be a man. I just want to. I just want to be. I just want to be. That's right. I just want to be. And he's a pastor of a church now, and man, he went through I was some like, stuff too. Is he, he a pastor? Yeah. He is. Yeah, and just you know, threw away a career, so much money, and yet found you know, freedom through death, which I hate. I hate that freedom always comes it's through worst. death, but that's how it always comes. It's, it's just also though, as, as Sarah says, it, it's a portrait of the kingdom of God, of the kind of yes, the disgraced totally. and the disabled and the strange, you know, and he doesn't treat these people like sideshows. Like they all clearly, they all showed up mm -hmm. for the documentary and none of them say, oh, he was using me to make a buck. It was more just like, he was sort of come on in. If no one else will take you, I'll take you. And what it reminded yeah. me was and Andy Squires, who a musician uh, whose wonderful new single is out. He, he posted a little devotion called I Saw God recently. And he wrote this. He said, I saw the sick who had endured years of infirmity, those who had been prayed for and had not been healed, laying their hands on others who were also sick, praying for their healing. I saw those who were once wealthy, now made bankrupt by the arbitrariness of life, still singing songs of praise. This is Andy's description of the kingdom of God. I saw those with imperfect doctrine, overcome with the pleasure of knowing Christ. I saw those with no victories to speak of, boasting Christ as their victory. I saw those working to construct their theology with fear and trembling under a great weight of humility, presuming themselves to be in error, trusting that Christ would forgive their inaccuracy. 
I saw poor saints giving money to those in need while still waiting for God to provide for their own needs. I saw those with the greatest revelations of God refrain from being condescending on social media. I saw cessationists announcing a move of the Holy Spirit. I saw Catholics serving the Eucharist to everyone who came to the table. I saw Pentecostals whispering softly. I saw evangelicals preaching a wonder-filled soteriology. I saw the wise and the strong find God in foolishness and weakness. I saw a church among whom no miracles had ever happened not capitulate to unbelief, not give up on the possibility of a miracle happening. I saw the misunderstood, the maligned, and the unjustly judged, listening and offering grace and wisdom to those whose prejudice they had endured. I saw a woman with a lifetime's worth of disappointment offer it to God, whispering, you are worth it all. I saw a man, a born loser, who had never achieved any culminating deed that would make his life make sense, confess, not my will, but yours, Lord. I saw a widow bring provision for many. I saw Christ, the one God among many who would rather himself be devoured than to devour. I saw God among the absurd and ironic in what made no sense to the conventional wisdom of my expectations. I saw the St. Paul saints is what he saw. I think that's, <laughs> that's sort of what he saw. <sighs> so that's the vision good stuff. I saw. I also saw Mercy Begetting Mercy that Caitlin Beatty wrote about in our wonderful magazine this week. But any, any, any final words? I'm thinking of, did I tell you guys about this interaction I had at our new church with a young woman behind me? Have I told this story? Mm-mm. So I was sitting in our new church. My brother and sister-in-law are in town from New Orleans. They got their baby with them. We've got, you know, I've got my two kids, right? And the whole service is like our son getting up to walk around. Our, <laughs> the, my nephew, definitely like not, he's three months old and like he needed to, you know, basically be bounced around in the entryway. Like all of these, like there was a lot of movement and this young woman behind me after the church was over, she, she said, uh, your family is so beautiful. You guys are so close. Mm-hmm. And I wished I could have said anything other than this to her. But what I said was, we've suffered a lot together. And I think that's why we're so close. And I said, I wish I could tell you something else. Like, Mm. I wish I could give you a different answer than that. Like, here's a book to read. But we've suffered together. And, you know, I, when I think about men and how we're facing so many men who are self-isolated or isolated by society. It's like, you know, we need them actually. Like we really do in our families to suffer alongside us, to, to hold each other, to turn into each other in this bizarre situation we find ourselves in called life, you know? So I don't know. I think that's just my hope. It's a great story. It's true. I wish it weren't, but it is. <laughs> yeah. Any closing word for us, Harge? No. I, I just, yeah, the uh, death and resurrection. Like Sarah was saying, if you find yourself suffering, God is at work. He's doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in it. He's in it with you, and he's, it's not the end of the story. Keep on keeping on. You might get that. Jesus makes the phone call to Mike Vec when he's down and completely you know, counted out in every respect. The phone rings with this ludicrous, ludicrous offer to invest in an independent team with a baseball park right next to a very heavily trafficked railway. (laughs) It's 
right. And uh, that, my friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a bad idea at the right time to the person who's has nothing in their hands anymore so they can accept it. <laughs> anyway, thank you both for being here today and for uh, and there's a lot lot to cover. So I'm about to go out to Minneapolis and St. Paul and I sort of want to go see You should go this see a game field. totally. Cuz I you, you know got to. Vec has, has has you know his ethos has translated into minor league baseball through you know he started to eat, owns the, the River Dogs in Charleston and I I don't know if he owns the Savannah Bananas but I know that whatever is going on down there it clearly it's a direct lineage to Mike Vec and what a beautiful thing how how God works through Absolutely. minor league baseball. So thank you guys both, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise